Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone, super happy to be here on Let's Talk AI today with Dylan Anderson. Dylan, how are you doing today? Yeah, great. So uh, maybe for the audience, could you introduce yourself in a few sentences? Today we're going to talk about data, AI, consulting, and a lot of more exciting stuff like regulations. But uh, maybe if you can, uh, in a few uh, sentences, describe who you are, either personally or professionally. For sure. Well, I think it all, uh, it all intertwines nowadays anyway, right? So my name is Dylan Anderson. I am a lead data strategy consultant at Redkite, which is a data change consulting firm in the UK in London. Uh, and we work primarily with CPG based businesses, but all, all across industries in helping them really get to the level of data maturity that they need to be at this stage in life. Mm-hmm. And my background is pure consulting. So I've been in strategy consulting for, uh, six years and about two years ago I, I started doing more data focused consulting and prior to that as well i coded in r so i've coded in r in for about eight years mm. so one of the uh yeah one of the first ones i i haven't kept it up as much as i want to but uh that has given me kind of that bridge between the strategy realm and the data realm which is not a very common thing in the data world so that's kind of me in a nutshell from a professional perspective personal perspective I live in London love it it's, it's an amazing city and I love uh everything data and everything sports and activities and yeah that's awesome well thanks a lot for being on the podcast um I have a lot of questions you mentioned air you mentioned um I know you have a, a very big interest in regulations uh um uh, so, so the first question I want to do before we get into all those uh, cool details and we learn a lot about what you do, um, uh, being a, a lead in the team, um, about consulting, about your vision of uh, the entire industry, about big projects that could be a th- very interesting things to, um, to talk about international projects. Um, the first question I want to do before that is, um, what are you trying to achieve? in the field? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think every year it's different. And that's what people have to realize is like, you have this five-year plan and guarantee you that five-year plan is not going to go um, to, to up stuff. Like you mentioned policy, uh, to Matt, and I, I did my policy degree in, in the UK and that's why I moved over here. So I really actually did want to get into data policy and, and, and manage and become in the political and government to understand data AI and what it's going to do to the economy. And I ended up back in consulting and now I'm actually on the data strategy realm and I love it. So my five-year goals from that is, is more around data strategy. I think moving in the future, I do want to see, I want to become more of a leader in data strategy, understand how that connects to uh, the world and to businesses in more of a pronounced way because data strategy is becoming a bigger thing. 
and how that connects to AI, ML, and like future areas of data science, because there's a lot happening and most people don't even have a strategy for data. So there's still a lot that needs to go on in this area. And I would love to kind of see that through and, and really help organizations benefit from that, especially in the public sphere where, where I do uh, have an affinity for government and politics and all that stuff. Hmm. Super interesting. Uh, you mentioned about uh, uh, what you study in, in your career. Uh, may I ask you to give us a perspective about when you finished studying and what you've done um, through your careers, like maybe key steps that you see on your career so that we can have a, a bit of perspective of uh, what you've been doing uh, the past years? Yeah, for sure. So I graduated uh, from my undergrad in business and politics um, back eight years ago in 2015. And right after that, I went into uh, political or into consulting, to management consulting. So I did strategy consulting for about three and a half years, focused purely on understanding how business works, um, how to, to develop strategies for big organizations. Um, and then I knew I was I wanted to go back into my master's. I knew I wanted to do that. But I was like, okay, I'm going to go back anyway. So why don't I take a little career break? And I, I took a year off and I actually traveled the world, which was amazing. It was kind of the best decision I made because I was like, I'm in my 20s. This is the time to do it if I if, before I have a family. Uh, and then I end up in London after that uh, at, to do my master's in public policy, uh, where I kind of realized, like, I want to do policy, but I'm also a lot more interested in data and the analytics around it. So I did my whole master's focused around the area of election analytics. So think Cambridge Analytica. That was me in my, my room doing Cambridge Analytica, but at a lot lower fidelity. <laughs> um, and... I was, I, I published a dissertation on how, at uh, what point does a person change their vote from one party to another in the Canadian and UK political system. And that kind of gave me the credibility to use data in a way that was more strategically thinking and, and develop insights through my data. Um, and that was, was why I ended up at, in data consulting, really. And I, I ended up at Deloitte and now I'm at RightKite, but it really was focused on bridging that gap between Uh, the data and strategy realm and that's kind of how it's come full circle and and throughout that time i as i mentioned i have coded in r so i understand that world and and how to, to use my r coding my r programming to deliver insights at using big amounts of data that companies have but they never actually use properly hmm very interesting and so um okay so that gives a perfectly um a nice perspective of uh, of things you mentioned a lot air coding um so can you give us a little bit more information about how you started coding in air and how it impacted your approach to data strategy and consulting in general yeah so i was introduced to r in 2014 2015 in my in my undergrad university and and it was really about i was actually doing baseball analytics so american baseball And say it's called sabermetrics and base and figuring out how to use the vast amount of stats there are in baseball to make better decisions to uh, predict what's going to happen. And I was just kind of like in love with how you can use the data out there to make these decisions better, and how it, how logical it was, and how the step process of it all. And that's kind of how my mind works, and that. Uh, that background and that foundation in using R 
kind of unlocked this whole world of data analytics for me, especially when I started uh, at Deloitte in, in that data and strategy realm, it, because I saw the, the connections between uh, what was happening in the data world, where all of these things were advancing so, so quickly, and what was happening in the business world, where every company thought that their competitors were doing so, so well at data analytics, but they were way behind. And every company is the same like that. And, and but they just need to figure out how to use their data properly. And they weren't doing that. And mm -hmm. so just having that perspective of how you can actually create insights from R was really a big plus in my resume because I understood the technical aspect of it. I've built these things. I know how to draw insights from them. And at the same time, I know how the business works. And there aren't, there isn't that really connection with most people. Most people stay in the technical realm or they stay in the strategy realm. They don't really bridge the gap between the two. So I think that kind of, that foundation in R really let me uh, experiment. Plus, I mean, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love coding. I built like a website and an app uh, VR with election analytics and just have fun with it. It's, it's so cool to, to do things like on your computer that you would never be able to do otherwise. Hmm. Hmm, that's super interesting. Um, I have a say. I have a, a similar profile um, uh, as a, uh, I, I like. I understand business, but uh, I also enjoy coding. And so you mentioned R. Um, have you done projects where you need to switch to Python, or like how do you, how do you approach? Uh, like, is it R? You're like one long time tool that you go to or or like can you adapt based on like uh i don't know if like the clients have a an ecosystem and they want to use python because i know python okay. is very popular too uh like yeah how, how is it like do you try to always go for r because you're like so much time into it yeah, I mean, it's a great question because at Deloitte, I was, my whole team worked in Python. So I ended up not doing a lot of dev work because they're, they all had Python skills and I was too expensive to bill out as like a junior Python consultant. <laughs> so it, I ended up being, I did a few projects in R because it was just kind of my own strategic projects and I needed to do my own analysis. Um, but I didn't really have, I was, I was used more of as a strategy consultant because I didn't have the Python experience. And nowadays I don't really actually work that much in the IDE. I don't do Python R SQL um, because I'm I'm more about, you know, saying what this tool can enable for the organization and explaining that yeah. and helping business stakeholders with that journey. Um, I do have on my resume uh, Python uh, beginner and SQL intermediate because the SQL logic is the exact same as the R logic. But, uh, and then I did do some stuff in Tableau. So, I mean, I'm, I'm well diversified, but R is my expertise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see. I see. And now with, uh, with, um, with ChatGPT or, or whatever tool, <laughs> it's super easy to translate from one. Uh, I think the, it's the name Codex is, uh, yeah. is the model of OpenAI that translate code, I think. Yeah, so, I feel like you can you can do it so easily now. Yeah, it's super it's very easy. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, AI and machine learning are very sexy. You see a lot of memes on LinkedIn about that when like you're a data scientist or like you start hiring data scientists, but you have no data architecture and like need data, data engineers, machine learning engineers. And, and a lot of people see it too much as like 
magic stuff, but like it's nothing more than just having proper foundation and, and, and like how can you scale your data and and most of the time may like so like if if depending on the stage and you might um, agree on that, but depending on the stage you, you you might just need like you said just cool BI with the most important metrics and have like two kind of metrics, like like the kind of sexy metrics long term. Like, am I having more users or or what is going on? But this is like on, on one side, and then metrics that understand more the the real growth because like user growing might not be um, the most important metric to see when we want to evaluate. Um, the quality of an application or like uh, how users are engaging with a new feature, etc., etc. And um, I feel like um, most of the time, like you said, the, the data-driven mindset is what we need first before like thinking about ML and AI, because this is just a prolongation, a continuation of like what we've been doing and what metrics are we following and, and how, how can we enhance more cool metrics once we've that. Um, I don't know if you want to add something about this. I mean, yeah, no, you're completely right. I think the most value you can gain as an organization from data and analytics is understanding what's happening first and then understanding the why behind it. And then you can move to the forecasting and, and prescriptive analytics. I mean, it's that those four stages of analytics, like you have to think about them all at the same time. So think about the forecasting, the prescriptive stuff, even when you're building the foundations, but don't just jump to the prescriptive and forecasting. Hmm. To your point, you need to understand the metrics that work, understand the metrics that deliver value hmm. for the organization before you go off and spend a ton of money to create something that will deliver even more value on top of that. Because if you get the metrics wrong and you build this ML engine and it's like, oh, actually that doesn't matter. Then it's like, okay, well, what did we just spend 2 million pounds on or $2 million? Like it, 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 it really, you're completely right. Yeah. I like, uh, there is, um, there is uh, in the book, uh, I think it's in uh, the book Traction. I'm not sure of the name of the author, but um, they talk about uh, the like traction metric basically. And this is like one metric that will drive the entire business. Like for example, I have an application. Let's say I want to have a hundred paying customers. And like this is the main metric that I want to boost. And then like it have related metrics and then, but like then it helps so much to prioritize. And I feel like prioritizing is like, it comes even before like having all the BIs and all the stuff and 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 then yes sorry oh, oh yeah no I was gonna say you're completely right um you keep talking you keep going <laughs> <laughs> no that, that's like so this is what I found super interesting I recommend you this book I'll put it in the description traction and and it really enhances like the data driven like how to be data driven how should I prioritize these BI, like, why do I want to monitor this? And like putting this into a big picture, it will enhance like which pipeline will I do first? Like my data engineers are going to build a lot of things. Okay, cool. But how, how do I prioritize that? And, and, and after all this thinking and having a very data-driven thinking, and this is what, what you said before, then we can say, okay, so now that we have that, how can we enhance these metrics and this data 
to like do forecasting or like to, okay, so we see that our users after two months of being on the app, they tend to be twice less active. And this is like specific insights that will, that will allow to do like predictive model to like see when the user is going to stop using the application, if we can do something about it. But like if the big picture doesn't exist, then why am I going to try to predict something and with, with what data? Yeah, no, no, completely. And I think that's a, that's a really good point. I, I think the traction thing is, it comes to mind because I think one of the biggest problems that organizations have as well, and I think a lot of data people will, will sympathize with this, is that the KPIs are different across the organization. So you're measuring different things. And even if they have the same name, they might be actual different things. So the source data is different. And, and that creates a whole host of issues. And um, and then to your point, the prioritization comes into play. Um, and we just I just worked with a client uh, a little bit ago about prioritizing their use cases in data. Mm. And what you just said is actually made sense. What the one there was one key uh, metric that actually shone through for a lot of these use cases, and it drove everything else. Like it helped uh, drive their revenue, it helped drive um, their new customers, it helped drive a lot of things, and so, I mean, a lot of the use cases were centered around this uh, one metric. And what we found is when we were prioritizing, it wasn't about saying, okay, we're going to do one, then we're going to do two, then we're going to do seven, and then we're going to do six. And that those are the, that's the order we're going to do the use cases. It was actually about a, a more of a logical flow of based on if we build the, the foundations for this one metric that drives so many other things, we actually unlock a lot of two, three, four, and five yeah. And therefore, we can actually build in a more efficient way. And I think people need to start thinking like that in data and stop being thinking like, okay, we're going to set up a team. They're going to sit over here and we're going to set up another team and they're going to sit over here. Yeah. And we're going to have them building two different things and not talk to each other. And therefore, there's no efficiencies, even though they're working on a few sources that are the same and they have similar metrics. And that's how companies build today and that's what's wrong with that's why we spend so much money on data and don't get the value returned so it is about prioritizing but prioritizing in the right way where you're unlocking as much value as possible across the business using one or two kind of main sources and main metrics hmm. Hmm. Well, that's super interesting thanks for sharing uh sharing this case um uh, uh so I wanted to ask you, uh, following up on this, and, and we'll get back to AI and machine learning right away, but um, I wanted to mention storytelling uh, and uh, how to effectively communicate. Um, so, um, so you've been doing consulting for, for, for quite some time now. You've had a lot of clients. Uh, we can easily see that, um, uh, that you have a, a very... Uh, a great way to express yourself and communicate messages. Uh, and this is a, a very strong point, not only for like clients, but also for like teams and like ex expressing this concept and those ideas and implementing it um, are very challenging tasks. And a lot of the time, like you said, like some teams we, we end up being separated and not be driven by the same metrics. And, and so not, not questioning why why this went wrong and maybe just like do one why 
and like if you keep pushing to five whys then 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 you understand deeper but they won't do that and so about storytelling and communication and communicating um like how to communicate effectively do you have a key takeaways and and what are what is your perspective on yeah storytelling communicating data team data insights um based on different audiences clients could you share about this yeah sure I think, I mean, every, I echo everything that you said, because it is kind of getting down to the, the those five whys are get to the so what and really understand what people are looking after. Um, and I think the first step you have to think about is who's your audience. Um, so are you presenting to the CDO? Are you presenting to the CEO? Are you presenting to your manager? Those are three different audiences with three different levels of attention span and interests. So you have to make sure that you align those interests with your audience. Uh, the second big thing that I think uh, people lack is is bringing stakeholders along for the journey. You don't create a story or a presentation in one day and present it. it. It takes months. It's a project presentation. It's something like that. So engaging people, talking to people, getting their perspectives on it, uh, and bringing them along for the journey. Another great way to do this is also even include quote, quotes from them in an anonymous fashion and then draw out themes and say, look, we talked to like 20 different people. And here are the themes and here's some direct quotes that just show like, this is what we mean. That always astounds people. They're like, wow, someone else thought the exact same thing I was thinking. This is great. Like, let's do this. So that really helps bring people along as well. Um, a third thing, and I think this is super problematic in the data uh, industry. And it's like, it's something that I've had problems with a lot too. And like everybody does is it's hard to get out of the weeds. We love the details because we built the details. So when you build your dashboard, when you build your uh, machine learning model or whatever, you want to be like, okay, well, I used this. The p-value is this. I, did, I ran a t-test. It was this. And you're like, no, no one cares about that. Like, let's be real. What they care about is it delivered this and therefore the business should do this. Those two things. That's it. You just need the insight and the implication and then have the, all the rest in the appendix. But because we did the details, because we built that, we want to include it because we're like, I spent so much time on this, but no one cares. And if you do that, then you lose the audience right away. Um, so that's a key thing. And it, I think it goes back to exactly what you said, Tama, where it's like, you got to get to the five whys. What is the point of, of what you did and why did you do it? And, and that is about creating a story. And then one final tip of actually like creating a PowerPoint presentation um, is I've seen a lot of bad PowerPoint presentations. I can imagine. <laughs> and, and I've created a lot of them too. But I think in the data world, they tend to use a lot of text. You tend to try to add into much more than there needs to be. And in the business world, time is the biggest resource available, especially for like C-suite CEO level. They just want to be told what to do and what the output was. So less is often more. Call out things on graphs. Don't use a ton of text. Use the headlines as actual descriptors. So actually tell your story in the headlines before you even put stuff on the slide. You can just write the headlines and then put stuff on the slide because that really helps guide you. And then take a moment, like take a day away from it and then look back on it, edit it based on that kind of stuff. That's how you create a good story. That's how you get better at communication. It's not about 
saying more. It's about saying less, but saying the exact same thing with less. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, super interesting. How about going to a client without a presentation? <laughs> well, then you just have to learn to be a consultant and bullshit your way through. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, yeah, because a lot of the time what I've seen in, in, in my... Uh, in my humble experience in consulting, uh, it's um, we do these PowerPoints where like, because we're not sure, maybe this is more like when you do offerings or and, and like you, you do a lot of text to explain a lot of things. And I, I would I would like to send the same, like t- two presentations, one very soft, like, like the less is more ID and one like very, very detailed about what we've done and and how good we are and, and all of that and see the um, ratio of which works best because I don't know. I'm always super intrigued about, and what if I, I what if we've done things differently? Like what would have been the outcome? Yeah, no, it, I think that's, a, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, I think everyone would open the one that just says a little bit and you get like two or three stakeholders reading the detailed one because they might need to. But the thing is, I mean, and I mean, this is in consulting, but in every, everywhere else too, is you still need that detail. You still need to show your work and be like, this is how I got there. And this is the detail if you want to read it. But eventually, like as you build up your reputation, as you build up your trust with your client or your stakeholders, they will then be like, you know what, Thomas, you're a solid guy. We know that you know your stuff. So we're just going to take what you put on the executive summary and take that verbatim and we'll go do it because that's kind of the relationship you build. Um, But those first few times that you're engaging a client or a stakeholder, you do need to show your work and be like, okay, well, here's the details if you want to read them, if you have time to read them. And most people don't, but you need to show that. And, but at the same time, you do need to storytell those details as well. You can't just put a ton of text on the page and, and expect people to read them because like, just like you, just like no one who's listening to this podcast likes to read documentation. Um, I know some guys. <laughs> <laughs> do they like to read it, or they like the fact that they understand it better after they read it? They, they uh, do. They do like. To read it. <laughs> I think it's like there are a level where, when they go into documentation, like for example, API documentation or like a tool documentation, it's just like they've become so good at these things that just they're just curious and they're just learning through reading documentation to be fair i've learned more about coding reading documentation after trying 20 times and failing and then reading documentation like oh this is amazing i don't know why i didn't do this before but then i'll still make the mistake and not do that in the future but anyway the the initial and that's what i'm saying is like the initial human response is not to go and read the encyclopedia of documentation it's Mm -hmm. to just go to get the highlights and then try it out and see what you do. And then if I need someone to read the documentation, I call up my analyst who's below me and be like, hey, um, Susie, go read the documentation <laughs> and tell me what how we're going to build this. Um, but the CEO is not going to be the documentation. The CEO is not going to read the appendix in detail. They're going to read the exact summary. And that is the most important part. Exactly. I think uh, from what I understand, it's like, one thing, if I'm doing an offering or if it's a new client, we need to showcase our skills and in details if like someone 
technical, for example, is going to review or work if it makes sense, if what we propose makes sense. So that is important. And and like what you said is, uh, is like, it really depends on who is in front and like what my client wants. Does my client want to understand on a medium level the architecture, some graphs, but not too much and some text and like the business value and some pains and etc. Or do they want like very straightforward presentation with like more interaction and less um, less like graphs and texts? Or do they want a very sophisticated thing with very detailed? Uh, yeah, I think it really depends then on on uh, on each person that we're going to talk to. But from what I hear from your experience, uh, most of the C levels um, uh, they they don't want so much details, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you brought up a great word there too, is interaction. And I think that's something that's super important in presentations is being engaging and really mm. talking to your stakeholders, bringing them along and being like, okay, what metrics do you think is great? And you can even do that in a presentation and doing that elicits buy-in. It mm. creates uh, a want for people to be part of it for it to succeed because they see themselves in it and they're participating in it. I mean, everyone's been on that Zoom call. It's like 90 minutes and you're just watching a presentation and 10 minutes in, you're you're out. You're like clicked out and you're like, okay, I'm going to turn off my video and vacuum or something like that. Um, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> so don't be that person. And a lot of data people are that person. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's like what you mentioned right there is um, my my fear my biggest fear in, in a company <laughs> being stuck in a 90 minutes presentation where i have nothing so my approach to that now is uh letting a bot for me here the, and, and like it will uh, summarize everything after after the call ends and so uh if i have things to do or <laughs> the only thing i can do is answer questions because i won't be there <laughs> that's, 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 but that's something like yeah this is i think this is a lot of uh Time management is a very big, uh, is is super important to me. And like between 15 minutes to 30 minutes calls, I feel like it's very, it's okay because it can be efficient. And if the call have a purpose, but like calls that doesn't have a purpose and we're going to be 15 a call and listening to one guy and it, ha it have interest for like three of all the 50 people. Yeah, that's... Uh, my struggle but, uh, but, uh, i feel you somehow, I, feel you. I, <laughs> somehow I, I don't i don't end up in these situations uh either because i i make sure i don't happen <laughs> i mean anyway so that's good uh, <laughs> but yeah um, thanks thanks for sharing these points uh very uh, very interesting points um so we talk about misconceptions, we talk about air, we talk about storytelling so you worked with a lot of large companies you have a specific interest in the public sectors, um, uh, politics. Um, how large companies are using AI and machine learning to drive uh, revenue or, or create value? Yeah, I mean, it builds on what I said before in that a lot of companies aren't and even a lot of large companies aren't. And I think it, it really is the biggest thing is sector dependent. So a lot of tech companies, especially new age tech companies are using ML and AI and they're using it because they were built from a digitally native perspective. So they built that and use that as their, their unique selling point, a USP. But 
in companies that are well established and that are huge, ML and AI is only a kind of a small department in their organization, if anything. Um, I think a lot of a lot of companies we work with, they're in the billions of dollars in terms of valuation, in terms of revenue, in terms of sales. Um, they have an amazing process. Like they they've been doing what they've been doing for years. Uh, they know what they're doing. They're very efficient in how they do it. And they're not using ML and I, AI at a large scale yet. They're using it maybe to help improve some of their analysis. So you're doing regressions, doing cluster uh, clustering, um, using a bit of NLP. It's not that prevalent yet, but some of that stuff is, is happening kind of ad hoc. And then there's a bit more of an emphasis on using uh, ML in forecasting. Um, so to do forecasting in a, in a good way, you, you want to start using machine learning to, to really kind of understand how to best uh, optimize and, and best uh, simulate these types of things. Um, AI, I haven't seen really anywhere, to be honest. Um, and to be fair, I don't work with Google or Microsoft. But um, other than just using AI add-ons and tools and maybe a chat bot or two, but AI is not actually being used by a lot of these large large companies. Um, the other thing uh, that I'll say is like, I did actually, when I was at Deloitte, I worked with Digital Twins, uh, which is uh, simulation. So simulation-based modeling based on building a virtual ecosystem in a Python IDE, uh, setting that up so that you can actually replicate what the physical world is doing. Um, and I, I did see some of that stuff happening with companies. But again, companies were doing this as proof of concept. So they started out by building it for a one, one-off kind of scenario using CSV files from Excel um, or like a very, without even a SQL database or something like that. And then they had to build the foundations around it because they're like, wow, this proof of concept was great. It delivered so much value. And mm -hmm. so they had to build the foundations, the data foundations to actually enable that uh, digital twin. And it's the same case as the ML model. Like if you're building a forecasting model, it needs to draw from the, the data foundations. So that's really where we're finding. And that's where I'm finding a lot of organizations are, but they are very quickly getting their shit together. Excuse my French, because they know they need to, and they have started to realize that we're not going to throw money at ML and AI until we have those foundations ready to actually build on top of that. And they are hiring leaders who know how to get to that stage with the ML and AI and the forecasting. And that's, I think the thing, the, the most progress that, that these large organizations are seeing. Um, yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. Um, based on, I feel like, so you mentioned like those, um, companies, those big organizations are doing like very specific tasks, like over and over. And, and, and I feel the same way. It really depends on the industry, but we'll see like churn prediction models or risk prediction models or, or like sales forecasting. It's like very, like you say, it's like linear regression or like very basic models at scale. Yeah. Somehow. Um, and I, and, and what you said also is, uh, like when we build a proof of concept, we build it with CSV, but then we need like, uh, a new data model. We need to host it either it's in the cloud or in premise or, or both. And, um, 
and uh, this takes uh, some data engineering and it takes some time. Um, yeah, it, it, like, no, exactly. And I think that is one reason also that we've seen in the data industry is huge shift from data science to data engineering. That's why is because you start building these things. You're like, oh, it creates great value, but we have none of the foundations actually keep this going and make it productionized. Hmm. And so that's where the data engineers came in. And now I think we're even seeing another shift. I think data engineers are still super high priced and super valuable, but another shift to data analysts, um, because now the business are realized, okay, we've set this up, but like, it's not delivering actual value. We need data analysts to come in and like, tell us what it means. Right. Mm. So that's the other shift that I think it is seeing. And it all comes back to like this proof of value thing or proof of concept thing of, of building something seeing if it works and seeing if it actually delivers ROI and then building out the foundations around it. And I think a lot of companies are on that journey. Hmm. Yeah, totally. And I feel like profile profiles in the teams are going to be more and more hybrid. We talk about a lot lately, MLOps, machine learning operations. We talk about machine learning engineers. Um, and uh, like, I feel like today a data scientist, a great data scientist should not only know how to build models and uh and uh, uh and like analyze data but also like how how will my uh, model be hosted like uh, yeah am i using cloud am i on premise um what kind of is it aws is it azure like how do i implement this model how do i maintain it how do i retrain it and like all of the things and like what are the pipelines? Like, what are the pains? What are the reasons that my model is not how I would like it to be? And maybe it happens in the data engineering part where some data doesn't arrive um, as it should. And I feel like having this big picture is going to be more and more important because today a data scientist, the job of, uh, I mean, I won't take out the value of uh, like great <laughs> data scientists are like, I mean, super super valuable but my point is having the big picture in mind and like being agile between okay so i'm going to go into this pipeline and i'm going to to call this pipeline so that i have this data and i can continue without like connecting to the data engineering team and so where am i going with that i would like to ask you about um how do you see a bit of um those roles evolving with like the release of ChatGP, um, of um, ChatGPT, GPT four, and like the field evolving. How how do you see it? Um, yeah. In the future. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you brought that up. I could completely agree with you. I think, I think the siloed data scientist, the siloed engineer, is becoming less valuable to an organization. I think um, people do need to learn more about the data space. Like, for example, a data engineer that doesn't know anything about data governance. I don't want that data engineer. I know data governance might be boring as hell, but if you don't have data governance, you're making your job 10 times harder. So I don't, I want people who are more well-rounded, but you don't need to be an expert in everything. You just need to know a lot of these elements. Um, and, and this is actually one of my biggest qualms with the data industry right now. I think it's too siloed. I think, Everyone's like, okay, I, I'm a data engineer. I'm just going to focus on engineering. I'm a data scientist. I'm going to focus on ML models. I'm a data analyst. I'm going to focus on dashboards. And it's like, okay, yeah, but you also need to know how the data ecosystem works. Like how, what's the life cycle? What's the strategy behind it? What's the governance around it? 
how, how are you going to productionize? Like all these things matter to different roles and you can't just leave it to the head of analytics or the CDO to, to manage that. If you want to grow in your career, you have to kind of start thinking a bit more big picture. And it goes back to the storytelling thing I was saying as well, right? People are too stuck in the weeds. They're too focused on, on upping their technical skills and being like, okay, I just, I now know this new library. It's like, no, focus on kind of actually delivering the results, which is coming at a higher level. So to your point, uh, to Matt, it, it really is like learning to think with a business perspective with while having the skills to deliver data uh, results and data insights. And that is the, that is going to be the new normal. And I think, I mean, I posted on, on LinkedIn a, a little bit ago about um, how everyone's still talking about, oh, become a data analyst, learn SQL, get a six-figure job. And you're just like, I'm just like, no, it's not 2017 <laughs> anymore. It's like, that's not going to happen. Like, it, it's not, ChatGPT is a $20 a month thing, and you can have it write all your SQL code. Um, what you're going to see people hiring for nowadays is, that connection between the two, that understanding, as you mentioned, of the different realms of data and how that delivers impact and delivering value and showing that you can deliver value. It's not going to matter as much of whether you can code or not. Hmm. Uh, super interesting. Uh, yeah, these are a very interesting time and the progress is uh, it feels exponential. It feels like every day something is happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's hard to keep up. Yeah, we, we um, built we built the tools to to take our jobs away from us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I feel like uh, I think I was uh, listening to the CEO of um, of OpenAI, and and I feel like we're just going to produce more. And like what he said, and like this is not my idea, but um, I think Sam Altman, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Sam. Yeah, yeah, no, Sam Allen, yeah. Um, and uh, he, he was really like, uh, boosters are just going to make us produce more faster. And so this is going to be an inter interesting shift too in consulting and in companies in general. Like, how do you adopt these new tools so that you don't stay behind? Because like, if you're a content creator, there is going to be so much content in the future because of like, yeah. AI and process or if you're in the industry you're going to build so much more code like your engineers are going to be but like it's still the same problems like when someone is going to do a pull request you need to review that code you need to make sure that that code work with uh, the rest of the code assuming that you're working on an application and you have a, an environment where where you have the engineers working on, on specific tools and 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 you need to be data driven more than ever you need to understand your five whys you need to have feedbacks and you need to slow down when things are not working well. But, um, I mean, that's my, that's my point of view on, on this. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think you, you still need the human in the system. Um, cause we're not at that point yet. And I think, I think there's also two sides of the coin of like the whole AI is going to replace all these jobs and stuff like that. And then the AI side is like uh, all the people who, who love AI are, and are working on it are saying like, well, no, it'll just create more jobs that are around this realm. Um, and I think that's somewhat true. I mean, we've seen it in the past industrial revolutions and when computers were introduced and the internet boom, uh, it didn't replace all jobs. It, it created more and in a different realm. 
The one downside of that, though, is is the market will have a tough time keeping up because whereas those things happen over decades or um, even like half a century, uh, this is happening in like almost instantly. So over the next two years, we'll see a huge change in the market kind of thing like that. That kind of quickness in how things are changing is is scary and it is different. It's difficult to to predict what will happen to the jobs in the future as well, um, but yeah. So I I mean I think that's a huge point that like is understated in this realm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to be both. We're going to assist to both great things and and bad things, uh, and I think uh, and I think we'll need to adapt, but. Um, but uh, it's very fascinating, and uh, yeah, I mean, you can't really stop progress. It's not like you can put a barrier. Or uh, we see petitions about like uh, <laughs> trying to limit AI, and, and uh, uh, it's co- it's a complex subject, but it is very important, and it is very related to uh, policy regulations. And uh, this is related to my next question. So um, uh, my next question is. Um, what are your thoughts about the current state of regulation for AI and machine learning in general and in the public policy? Yeah, I, I, I hoped you were going to go there next. Uh, <laughs> my AI model told me that you were going to go there next. Um, no, but I, I think it's a, a hugely underappreciated um, and scrutinized area. I mean, from both sides, like on one side, everyone's like, yeah, the government can't do anything. They're pretty inept at everything anyway. So what are they going to do with AI? Like they can't keep up. And then on the other side is like, okay, AI is terrifying. Like we need to like put barriers in this right now. I think to, to what we were just speaking to before on having human in the, in the system and human in the process, I think that's where regulation needs to go is it just needs to enable how we integrate humanity and human type thinking into what AI creates or what the outputs are, or what the product products are, because right now we're not doing that. We're letting the AI grow on its own because it's cheaper and it's, it's doing great and it's doing amazing things and whatever. Um, and, and like, actually, sorry, some of these companies do have like t- ethics teams and, and those types of things that are doing some of that stuff in the background, but you don't hear as much about it. Um, but my point, um, and I think, I, it was an article I read this morning about like um, I forget his name, but he just stepped down from Google and he he helped build these ML systems that kind of are the back background of, of the neural networks and he's a huge player in that. And he said we're creating artificial and machine based intelligence, which is very different from human intelligence, and that can go too far in different ways, and it can also uh, multiply in different ways, and I think. Regulation has to focus not on stemming that because it's going to advance no matter what, but on just making sure that humans are involved in it. It's like the nuclear codes like or the nuclear devices in the US, right? You have multiple people who have to press the button for to launch these nukes. With AI, I think we need to kind of start including the humans in the decision process where, okay, no, you know what? What they wrote was bad and we need to kind of neglect that and, and and get get rid of that and therefore that shouldn't be included in the training model or what have you um and i think we need to start with thinking like that but i don't know the problem is is people making these rules and regulations don't understand the technology 
and there isn't the investment from uh, uh, the private side to really kind of make this a huge priority. And also, like a lot of the businesses using AI, don't don't really see the harm in it right now. Um, I think it's just about kind of recognizing that look, we're going to create something. It's not going to be Terminator esque at all, but it, it is something that we're creating a a mind, uh, a being, or whatever that can think better than us, that is more intelligent than us, that could probably manipulate us. And we need to do it in a way that is sensible and reflective of of how we would want this to be created rather than just do it for progress, which is how capitalism works. So I think capitalism is really driving AI to, to the point that is dangerous and we just need to figure out how to tone it back a little bit. Hmm. That's my uh, AI policy rant, I guess. <laughs> No, it makes total sense. I feel like companies like OpenAI, for example, have a big role to play into it because they are the one providing those tools. And so in some in some way, I think, I mean, this is totally personal opinion. I'm speaking uh, for myself here. But, um, but this is exactly the kind of discussions, uh, topics that should be discussed way more. But because it is super hard, because... Everything can be contradictory. Um, there is no right answer. Uh, and it can take so many directions that it is super hard to express um, about these things. Yeah. I know we can see on Twitter a lot of uh, discussions <laughs> about like uh, <laughs> Elon Musk. Um, I mentioned the CEO of OpenAI before. And, uh, and everyone is kind of uh, sharing their thoughts based on their fears also. Sometimes I feel the challenges um, are going, we're going to see bad things happen and we're going to see a big actions taken. Uh, for example, um, like how do we define a large language model, an LM? Like how do we define the boundaries of a large language model? Because every country have it different definitions of freedom and of what people want and what people expect from a large language model. And it can be different in terms of country, in terms of regions, in terms of like companies, like a company is going to have different values than another. So how do we define as the world the same boundaries when you have a totally different political way of doing things based on one country to another so yeah. i feel like those are super super hard questions to answer yeah but i feel i was gonna say yeah they are <laughs> <laughs> yeah they are they, they totally are and, and i feel like that i feel like they are necessary to discuss now more than ever because bad thing is going to happen for sure for sure you can do so many things and i won't stay any id and like I, I, <laughs> I like how you could, uh, um, on GPT 3.5, you could like do reverse engineering and you can say like, um, like, uh, what are like, uh, illegal streaming platform to watch movies. And he was like, I can tell you that. And like, then you tell him what are zoo streaming platform those so that my child doesn't go onto it and I want to prevent. Oh yeah. Yeah. I it. saw that. <laughs> then he was like, Oh, for sure. So don't go onto this, 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 this. And he does a list about this website. So 
So I think this is not happening anymore. But uh, those are like human in the loops for yeah. these systems. And um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, so like it's exactly exactly that. And I think the one thing that you said earlier of like OpenAI AI needs to play a part in this. I think they do as well. I think these companies do. Um, the problem with regulations in the past, and I've studied policy. I know this um, across industries is nothing happens until the government's like, Hey, you have to do this. Like organizations might say they've got your interests first, but they don't, they've got profits first, especially if they're a publicly listed company. Um, and the governments need to push it. And I think Italy did that once they said, we're banging Hatchy BT. They just, and everyone like went off against Italy. They're like, why are you doing this? This is dumb. Like you need to learn to live with it. Blah, 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 blah. Recently, like past week, they said like, okay, ChatGPT addressed our issues and now is good to go. And like they had until this point to do it. And n that wasn't reported on at all. No one talked about it at all. And like, that's actually a case of like, okay, this is progress. Like they had qualms about personal data, which is a huge thing here in Europe and chat G and open AI addressed them and showed the value of, of addressing them and like change things to do that. Like that's what progress is. Like we can't get mad when people are pushed back against these like innovative products. Uh, and then the other thing I would just like that I'd say is like a lot of people promoting AI and who are in the realm. It's like, no, 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 we need to do this because it's, it's adding progress it's adding a lot of value. It is. I agree with that completely, but they in their work are adding value. So that's all they see. Right. So they have a different perspective, a different lens than the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that AI is not adding value. It's, it's amazing. It's so good. And I use GPT all the time, but it, it, we need to take a more holistic perspective and, and think about the wider picture, just like we were talking about earlier, the wider picture of data. We need to think the wider picture of what AI is and what it can create. And that is the conversation that needs to happen, which is not exactly. happening. Exactly. And it, yeah, or very, uh, uh, it, it is happening, but like, not enough and uh so yeah this is i think the most important thing is like bringing light onto these topics onto the the threats um i have so many <laughs> ideas of um of like what uh, i think the, the main point that um i'm concerned about is uh, disinformation because of how humans works uh the problems are going to come from like the the human weaknesses and um it is super easy to go viral by stating false information that that play on fears and and play on in people and and disinformation i think is one of the big concerns and, and there are a lot of m more other concerns but um it's like exactly it's the most important thing is to address those topics and to to keep a big picture of uh what am i doing yeah what exactly. am i doing i i talked to um uh, I had a uh, Claudia, um, Claudia Mel del Pozo. Uh, we have an episode on the podcast, and uh, she she mentioned a specific case where some data scientists assumed that they had products. Um, they had a specific products that were being uh, stolen more, or I don't, I'm not sure what exactly was happening with this product, but uh, they ended up putting these products uh, in. Um, in a vitrine um and um and you couldn't access those products uh you had to, like someone had to open it and get it for you 
and right near uh, those projects that were being um, protected, there were kind of the same projects, but for another type of uh, person. And uh, so basically, it ended up being like, uh, I'm trying to, 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 to summarize what I understood from what she explained to me, but basically, it was like a clustering of uh, ethnical type of customers that ended up like for those specific people, we're going to close this project up. And for these specific people, it's going to be free to grab. Like you, you can grab it yeah. and just go to. The... And so like when you listen to this case and you're like, okay, so no one in this said, okay, that's weird. Or yeah. like that's, uh, that's wrong. Like, yeah. hey, okay, we're going into this direction. Some data can provide some support to this, but this is wrong. Like there is a problem with that. Yeah. The fact that they went through with it in answer very real case of how can 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 things go go wrong. And, and in this case, no one gets hurt, but um, there are other cases where, where we can, um, where it's uh, the impact is uh, on another scale. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to earlier. It's like, that's one reason like things like data governance are so important and, and data mm -hmm. ethics and those kinds of elements that we often put aside because we want to achieve speed and we want to mm. achieve progress quite quickly. But to that point, like you, if you had governance in place, like it wouldn't do that. It mm. wouldn't kind of dismiss what it should and like, just go to the next easiest thing because the, the data is wrong and therefore it would break governance rules. Um, and I think governance, I mean, if, if they promoted and they shared more about the governance around these things, not how the neural networks work, but how they're governed, I think that would actually inspire a little bit more trust and a little bit and, and more focus on that. Again, the problem with, um, with governance and, and quoting Carly Taylor's that I heard on, on a on conference is when it's working, it's boring as hell. So <laughs> no one wants to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I relate. I relate. Um, so I think that's uh, for the regulation part. Um, um, I would have maybe, um, I would like to ask you about, so before, um, before I go into like the, 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 the last uh, few questions uh, I would have for you, um, uh, this podcast is uh, coming, um, um, we're touching the, the last few questions. Um, my question for you is maybe for people who are starting in the industry um, or who are who have an interest in your career, would you have some advice to those individuals um, like to, to to grow their career and to and to um, and to achieve their goals into the data and AI industry? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, I'll do three pieces of advice because consultants love threes. Um, one, <laughs> one is pick a focus. I think we get to, I mean, we were talking about people being well-rounded and stuff. That's fine. But like pick a focus where you want to be your expert in, uh, because otherwise you're just gonna, um, spend too much time dabbling in little things and not actually develop your skills in an area that you want to be. 
It could be like geospatial analytics or forecasting ML or like NLP, like whatever that focus is, pick it and 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 dive into that and that, do it because you're passionate about that area as well. Um, the second thing is like build a community. I didn't when I started in data and that's one reason why I didn't actually do much data when I started learning R. Um, mm -hmm. So I think like there's a ton of communities out there uh, just find one. LinkedIn is great. I mean, obviously, I've built my LinkedIn brand on there. I've built a community through there. Um, it's a bit oversaturated now, but like LinkedIn is still a great spot to meet other like type people and then talk to them and speak to them face to face. Don't just worry about clicks and follows and likes and stuff. Actually, like, talk to them because that's where you actually learn things and, and start to develop meaningful relationships and friendships. And especially at people who are like at your level who are also doing the same thing. Um, that's the That's the key so you can learn together and grow together. Um, and then the third thing, and I've kind of harped on this for the rest of the call, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, on about it, but uh, be diversified and think about the business. So you need to think about the value you're delivering and whatever you make, whether it's a personal project or uh, a work, uh, work project or a work uh, task, think about like what benefit you're going to create. And if you start thinking about that more and more, like you're going to, advance faster and you're going to grow in your career faster and how i always like to do it is is emulate the people above you think about how they think learn from them ask them how they learn how they think about these types of things because they're two or three years above you or more 10 20 um and they've done it before and they can do it much faster than you so you have to kind of emulate and learn from that and, and take that feedback and grow with it um, and I think going back to the diversification thing, it, they are thinking from a higher level and that is what you, what you want to eventually do. If you are going to grow to your career to manage your perspective or, uh, from a certain way. Um, and then, yeah, so th those are my three pieces of advice. I think there's a lot you can get out there, uh, from advice and you, you really do have to be picky about what you take. Because everyone, now everyone's offering advice in the age of social media. And some people have like two months of experience and they're saying like, this is how you grow in your career. It's like, well, you're in your first job. Um, but then there are some people who maybe have two months into a company, but they're offering advice on how to get a job in data analytics. And that's relevant because they actually have done it. So really be picky about what advice people are giving because um, there's so much out there and what value it's going to give to you and what you're going to do with it too. You have to take action on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. Thanks for this uh, three. <laughs> three and a half ish. <laughs> this is a trick that, I, I, I mean, in this case, I'm not saying it's a trick, but I, I personally like to, to showcase the data-driven perspective you're going to say. Okay, so I'm going to answer it in three points. And I have no idea what these three points are going to be when I'm stating that, but but I'm going for it. I'm going to find three points. P people like people like threes. It's a it's a human psychology <laughs> thing. Um and it's it's literally a consulting thing. You do it all the time. Um, yeah. but you're usually two is too small, four is too much, three is yeah. just right. Yeah, it's like a podium is, uh, is exactly that. So yeah. Sam, Altman, Sam Altman told something very interesting um, uh, in a, a podcast that I recently listened um, with uh, Lex, uh, Lex Friedman. And um, he, he said about uh, like everyone have, uh, like he, he couldn't give, um, uh, like you said, like it's hard to give advices because 
everyone have a different path. And if, if today I say I have a very strong interest in NLP, it's because what I'm doing in NLP makes sense with what I'm doing. But I feel like it really comes to like expose yourself to information, be very cautious about which what information do you let in and what you what information do you reject totally. Yeah. And then based on this information, what does like what does f- feel right to me? Yeah. And like and like this is I think is the trickiest part because we want to like find path and find ways and like follow and but like I think like the real value is like what is right for me? I 100% agree. I, it, it really is about finding your passion and that will change over time as well. So you will constantly go back and be like, you know what? I'm not interested in NLP anymore. I'm now interested in uh, deep learning, whatever, right? And, and so you constantly have to reflect. You constantly have to iterate. Um, and then the other thing I'd say about that is you... Um, Oh, I, I forgot. I, I had something really good, and I just, I just did ha- like this happened to you earlier too. Um, but, but yeah, you constantly have to a- adapt and iterate and stuff. And, and oh yeah, what I was gonna say is like, if you're super into, I, I've met a lot of people who are super into AI. They're super into deep learning, uh, ML, and it's like that's great. That's great. You're, you're beginning your career. You're gonna learn to build these systems. Cool. But like, just be aware. You're probably not gonna build those for some years because one, the company you get hired by won't be at that stage. Two, there's going to be people who are like above you and, and well uh, advanced than you. And, and then three, it's like you're you're going to be a, a, a junior person at a company and you're not going to be expected to write these new scripts. You're going to have to like work your way up to that. And just, I'm like, that's great. You love it right now. You think it's really cool, but make sure you're passionate about it that you can actually sustain yourself for three or four years until you get to that point. It. Hmm. because you're not going to be doing those fun, amazing things right away. It might take a couple of years. You have to have the passion to stick with it, to know you're going to get there. You have to work hmm. your way up. And, and that's the thing I don't think people realize. They're like very into like, oh, I want to do this right now. Oh, I'm not doing it right now. I'm going to leave this company and go try to find somewhere else. And that is why one reason why people end up at like four jobs in three years. But it, it really is, you have to find that passionate point and be in it for the right reasons, not the money, not the, the coolness and the sexiness of it, but because you love it. Exactly, exactly. And this is why I always say, like, don't, like, don't wait. Like, if you have an interest in something, if you're not doing it in your job, do it in your own project. Yeah. And, like, start doing it right now. Like, no excuses. Like, yeah. you, want, you want to do that? Do it. Just yeah. do it. Like find a little project, side project, build it, and and see how it feels. And maybe you'll go from one project to another. And this project you're going to, to like it a lot, and you're going to build your company from it. Or like we don't know, but like this is what you said. And, and like what feels right. And and like I can't do everything right now. I want to learn robotic. I just need <laughs> beauty videos. And we discussed robotic just before uh, starting this. Um, this uh, this goal and i have a, a new patient about robotic i don't know maybe it will last a week maybe it will last uh i don't know maybe i will end up building robots but uh I, yeah I but, that's the case of yeah yeah but just do it like, exactly what you said exactly. just do it like and you then you have the proof point too like you've got it like oh i built this over the weekend and there it is and like yeah, you exactly. have but you have to like actively be like okay you know what i'm setting aside a weekend 
I'm going to spend the weekend building my mini robot that's going to do everything I want and walk across the desk, basically. Yeah. That's that's what Tamayo wants. What, yeah. <laughs> I want to have chats with my little robot. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think that's a very, very good point because because we see so much people having success and like and we assume that success might be somehow happiness and it might be related, but I feel like enjoying the journey is about like having fun and having fun is about doing things that talks to me at some point and maybe i will build robots for one week and maybe i'll leave it and never do it again but but this approach makes me i feel like more confident with um i'm not frustrated because i try what i intend to try and to discover and by doing so every time and like you said before iterate uh one gains so much uh i mean i'm more restating and like sharing half of this is my personal view and half of this is like what i've heard in the podcast through last episode mm-hmm. what you, the tips you mentioned before juries we have a very interesting episode with juries uh, about similar similar uh, topics um but um i feel like this is um this is uh the core thing i build so much confidence on knowing that I will be true to myself and I will try these things and I will follow what speaks to me at some point and um and then you're like driven by your own own wheels and and it's not like about learning one one coding like okay I need now to code in C because because I have uh, I have this project it's not like I'm going to do a crash course about C and blah, blah, blah. I'll just start directly trying to do what I want to do and learning on the go about what I need to learn to do what I want to do. And yeah. we talked about the traction metric before. And in this case, my project is my traction metric and what I will learn, which will enhance my skills in data science, in data engineer, in my how do I do code, how do I do business, how am I driven? It is all related to my objective to have my little robot on my desk, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I would say my, my traction metric is like just learning and growing as a, a data person. And, and I think having that is is such a powerful thing because it does make you do. It makes you, because you want to create, like you have to do and, and, and yeah. create to do that. And if you if you don't do that, you're, you're not you're not going to end up anywhere. Success is an earned metric. It's not, it doesn't show up just naturally. Um, mm. An example of that is like my LinkedIn stuff. Like I didn't start getting uh, viral. I, I put that in air quotes cause I'm not completely viral yet, but that took like four or six months of actually posting. And that it took me three months to get even like a thousand followers. And now I might get that in like a month or so. Um, but it was earned. It was me posting consistently, consistently working at it, improving my language, improving my communication, knowing what people want to hear. Um, and, and it's the same thing with anything, right? You, you have to improve on what you do. And you prove that by doing projects, by building your robot. At first, maybe it doesn't walk, then it walks, 
and it speaks and then it dances on your table. Who knows? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. That's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see, let's see if, uh, let's see if I, um, what? if I build it, I will send you. Uh, yeah, watch out, watch out Boston Robotics, uh, Tomas <laughs> coming. <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. So um, last two questions, where can people reach out to you and see more of you, your content on LinkedIn, your pretty present, your, your present, uh, like, how can people learn more from you and, and reach out? Yeah, so LinkedIn's the best uh, method. You can find me on LinkedIn, Dylan Anderson. Um, I work at Ride Kite, so that I'm wearing a bow tie in my picture. So if you can't find it, then then you're not looking hard enough. Um, <laughs> and then I'm also starting to write on Medium because I, I think LinkedIn is is great, um, but it is a lot of like short uh, pieces that people like to zoom scroll by so i'm starting to write a lot more long form stuff in medium where i build out my ideas and build up my stuff and hopefully that might lead into a book sometime um and then yeah i'm i'm looking to put out some products at some point soon just around things i've learned over the past um and because i think it'd just be helpful for people uh, there's a lot of products out there but i think a lot of them like miss the mark on a few things um so a lot of stuff that we talked about on this podcast i'm, I'm looking to productionize so so yeah buy me on linkedin though that's that's the main place <laughs> <laughs> awesome um dylan would you have a message for the let's talk AI community yeah i would say um keep being interested keep listening to these kinds of podcasts i think this kind of thing separates you from a lot of other people and acting on it building on it learning about ai and data in general i mean i think this podcast is a great forum because it's talking to the future and ai and ml but it's also appreciating and understanding everything around it um so keep doing that and, and take after the philosophy Tama has put into this uh, podcast well thanks a lot dylan for your time for coming on the show I had such a great time uh, super inspired by what you're doing either on linkedin or um on your uh, consulting journey and uh, data um, data world journey <laughs> uh, i look forward to speak again soon and um and i wish you to have a wonderful day and um to everyone who's uh, listening uh go follow the content uh, of Le of dylan i think uh, uh, there is a lot to learn there and uh we mentioned before like how to separate like good content good information to to the flow of uh, LinkedIn uh, Liconic Gurus. Um, a guest uh, coming soon, Francesco, uh, talks a lot about the LinkedIn Gurus. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, reach out to Dylan if you have any questions. Reach out to me if you have any questions. And Dylan, I thank you again a lot for coming on the show and sharing with us. No, thanks so much for having me. This has been a, a great time. So really appreciate it and uh, love, to, love chatting about this stuff. Awesome. See you. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.